So I'll make this brief. We've got more singing that we're looking forward to and the sun and the day to enjoy. Said no preacher ever. I have a few words, and we'll see if the Spirit has others for us. One of the major themes in Mark's gospel, Mark is revealing who Jesus is to a world that can't seem to grasp him or understand him or get their head around him. They are not believing and receiving in him, and our world always does that. We try to find a box for Jesus that we have constructed and fit him into it or force him into it, and he is simply uncontainable, and he is totally other and even greater than that. The, the tragic thing for the Jews, the Jewish people, was this was meant to be, he is their Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the one long prophesied about the fulfillment, the coming of God's kingdom and deliverance in, in every way, in every great way, and they could not receive him and believe in him. This is tragic for the world because King Jesus is the leader and the ruler that we all desperately need and long for, a king who loves, a king who rules by serving, a king who is committed to justice and mercy and benevolence, a king who pours out his life for the hurting and the broken, the sick and the suffering, the marginalized and the oppressed, the poor and the weak. No wonder the world does not grasp him. We cannot fathom a governing authority that uses their power only for good, that loves, that gives, who is humble, who speaks wisdom, who shows mercy and compassion, who is just, and who holds all who would serve with him, under him, to be like him, to accountability, to his standard and to his character, one who rules through service and sacrifice. And so our world continues to struggle to grasp him, receive him, and believe in him. His is the upside-down kingdom from our perspective, but he makes all things right. We fail to grasp and understand and therefore struggle to believe and receive in him, especially those in power and those with affluence, which is a commentary into our culture today. But even as Mark's gospel reveals for us, those that were closest to him, would continue to struggle to believe and to receive. We've seen that again and again. The disciples saying, who is this? Being astonished once more at his signs or his authority or his power or his teaching. Who is this? They are the ones that are closest to his teaching and his presence and his ministry. And they're still struggling to grasp and to fit Jesus into the various boxes that they try to fit him into. Ultimately, Mark is writing this testimony, this letter to all peoples, asking that same question that the disciples are asking, that we know we too are asking, who is this? And who do you say he is? And for us today, with 2,000 years of history between us, we can revise history however we want, from our perspective or our positions of privilege or pride. Is he a good teacher, a wise prophet, a religious zealot, or something else or something more. But for those living in Jesus' day, they were beginning to hear the buzz or the rumors about him. There was so many testimonies about these miraculous signs at work, people being healed and delivered. And I'm, I'm sure rumors spread and made people question and wonder and need to see for themselves. It even reaches 
who Mark says is King Herod's ears. This is Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod, we'll put his name in air quotes in a moment. King Herod heard of what the disciples had been doing because Jesus had given them authority to go and extend the kingdom, to confront evil spirits, to deliver, to even miraculously heal the sick by anointing them with oil and praying over them. So King Herod hears the rumors uh, about Jesus. His name had become known. So at least the disciples got that part right. They're making Jesus known, not themselves, in the works that they were doing. Some of the rumors, some said, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And I'm sure these were just some of the rumors about him. It's interesting, though, that almost no one was denying the the supernatural around Jesus, the miraculous nature. There were too many testimonies, it seems, of his work to simply ignore what was taking place. That even Roman officials with little to no sympathy for the Jewish people or their God were believing in the supernatural signs and testimonies about Jesus so that even King Herod would start to believe in the miraculous nature of this man. And we'll see that testimony in a moment. But King Herod, air quotes, is Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. He's also called Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch simply meaning quarter. He was a a regional ruler of the area of Galilee and, and some of the surrounding regions to the east of the Jordan River. So he had a small area that he was over, and he thinks of himself very highly. And we'll see that in his his, his tragic encounter and testimony as there's a, a flashback that is presented to us by Mark. King Herod even started to believe in the supernatural about Jesus. It's interesting, though, if we, if we step back, we know that he is no real king. He's like a puppet king or a regional ruler. So, and Mark, Mark knows this. Why does Mark call him king here? The other gospel writers don't. I believe he's using it ironically as a juxtaposition between the true king, Jesus, that he is revealing, that this king is is no king. And perhaps he is representative of so many earthly rulers. And regardless of Mark's intention, though that can't be proven, I think it is fairly obvious as we read the story, the irony and the juxtaposition between Herod and Jesus. Herod, the one who has been given authority to rule a region by Caesar himself, who they called God or Lord. And he's given his authority to this Herod to rule and to reign. And yet his rule is wishy-washy and he is weak. He is stumbling and he is bumbling. He is out of control and his rule won't last long. While we have Jesus, the one who is the true king, who has authority not over only this region, but over heaven and earth, whose rule will endure forever, though it will end on earth and extend for eternity. And for the moment, one is being elevated and esteemed. The other is being denied and rejected. We see this contrast. Let's look into this poignant recount of John the Baptist's murder. It's a flashback in the midst of a story. Some have called it a Markin sandwich because it shows up in the middle of a story. I wonder if that's like a Cuban sandwich. Thank you for the chuckle. It won't come through the recording. This is such a deplorable description of Herod's character, a window into the base depravity of the Roman power structure of the day, and perhaps an ancient commentary of all power structures 
up to today, our current present. So hang in there. King Jesus is still king. May we grow in our longing and desire for this king and his kingdom by once again feeling the sting of earthly power. Verse 16 and following of Mark chapter 6. But when Herod heard of these rumors, he said, It is, it is John, John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. And here's now where the flashback comes in, the recounting of what had taken place. Mark tells us, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John the Baptist, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. A little messed up family. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Philip was still alive at the time. Herodias had a deep grudge and hatred against John the Baptist and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. He knew that John was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe in prison. While he heard him regularly, he would listen to his teaching. He was greatly perplexed, but he heard him gladly. An opportunity, though, came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And Herodias' daughter came in during the party and danced for them, and she pleased Herod and his guests and the king. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish, I will give it to you. He vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give up to half of my kingdom. And so she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask? And her mother said, ask for the head of John at the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, and his pride. He did not want to break his word, and he immediately sent word to an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And so he beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter. He gave it to the girl and the girl, girl to her mother. When John's disciples heard of this, they came and they took his body and they laid it in a tomb. Here we have this tragic flashback that sets the stage, and we might wonder, though, why here? It's clearly out of order in the story. It's a reminder to us, as we've seen before, that Mark, as most ancient writers and the gospel writers, aren't primarily writing historically or chronologically, but thematically. And so when, when things jar us that seem out of order to our ears, we should notice, and they would mean, mean for their audience to read that as well. Why here? Why are you putting this here? We, we know that took place there. That doesn't line up. So where's the theme? And I think Mark is showing us a few things in this that we would notice some foreshadow and maybe some irony. The treatment of John at the hands of the Roman authority is a foreshadow to the treatment of Jesus that is coming, that we'll begin to see about Jesus' own testimony. John, a righteous, holy man, killed, though innocent, laid in a tomb. We know what is coming for Jesus. So there's some foreshadow that Mark is bringing to us. There's also some irony. I think it's ironic that... Herod, as weak and evil and ungodly as he is, he believes in resurrection. That's his conclusion. While the disciples, the ones closest to Jesus, will deny Jesus' claims to resurrection and not believe him. So there's irony in this. There's also irony in the juxtaposition that we'll look at in brief between Herod and Jesus. I do believe Mark is also illustrating a couple other themes. By putting this account here where the bread of the sandwich, so to speak, is the story of the disciples being sent out, finding victory in the authority of Jesus, 
But now coming back to Jesus and giving testimony, we'll see that as the, the, the back end bread of the sandwich, so to speak, or that book end. I think it's evidence to any who would follow Jesus as his disciples, who would go out on mission, though not ready, to count the cost. Look what happens to those that continue without fail to consistently proclaim truth, to speak truth to power, to represent Jesus, to not deny his lordship and his kingdom. And those who do may suffer greatly and have incredible loss. Second, another theme no one seems to grasp Jesus' true identity. We might say this is Mark's primary point to reveal. And it is possible to follow Jesus and even be on mission while not fully coming yet to believe and having more room to grow in faith, which gives hopefully all who would hear and all who would read incredible hope and encouragement. Jesus is the King of Kings, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. But it was easier for Herod to believe in resurrection of John the Baptist than to believe that was true. And clearly we could say he did not want to believe, nor would anyone in power who wants to maintain power and keep control want to believe that Jesus is King of all kings and Lord of all lords for what that would mean for our own rulership or power. Just think about that for a moment. Herod saw the head of a man that he had tragically murdered on a platter before him. And all of his guests would have testified to that. And his conclusion to the rumors of the supernatural happening in and around Jesus and his followers is, that man is alive again. He's been raised from the dead. In some ways, in some ironic ways, we could say, Herod had a greater faith than even some of these disciples who have been given Christ's authority to do his kingdom work. It's an amazing account. Let's quickly look through four themes or juxtapositions between King Herod and King Jesus as we see, once again, the sting of earthly power, which makes us long for a ruler like Jesus, a king like him. They're significant, power, control, freedom, and wisdom. And we'll see them, I think, as a commentary for power structures even today. Herod Antipas is truly weak, though he's disguised by a facade of power and authority and pomp and importance. Jesus, his true power is concealed in his service, his sacrifice, his meekness. And no wonder the world struggles to receive him and believe in him. Human nature is to have authority and to have power and to keep it like Herod's at any cost not to lead and to rule by laying down all things, by giving up one's life for another, by pursuing the hurting and the marginalized, the oppressed and the powerless. And that's the way of Jesus. Contrast number one. Number two, control. This earthly king who's with his power and authority is supposed to have control, clearly is out of control. First, he can't shut John up. Imagine his incessant wife, who seems to be the one that has the most anger and bitterness and grudge about their relationship. They must have had an affair because later, according to Josephus, Herod will be deposed and exiled and Herodias will go with him, though she did not need to. If it was just a power relationship, then she could have easily remained and kept her position. But she went into exile with Herod, showing the depth of that relationship. But she had been married. Maybe that was through a power relationship only to 
Herod's brother, Philip. And so Herod openly married Herodias, even though Philip was still alive. Imagine the tension at those family reunions. Herod cannot shut up John, who continues to accuse and accuse, speak truth to power. Though he wants to, he's not in control. He continues to receive John and listen to him. And now, when he wants to truly protect him, he cannot. He's out of control. Furthermore, we see in this party and his guests, likely drunk, the daughter of Herodias named Salome and other places comes in and dances. And the language is what we probably fear or assume, a provocative kind of dance that, are, that aroused the guests to make Herod proclaim up to half my kingdom in pride. It was not his kingdom. But to make this oath that is ultimately not his to give and he's out of control in his flippant tongue. Jesus in contrast the one in complete control of his words, of his actions, of his passion, of his path. He also will speak truth to power and be unwavering, but he will lay down his life. He says in John 10, 18, I will lay down my life and no one takes it from me. I have the power, I have the control to lay it down and take it up again. It has been given to me from my father in heaven. The contrast is striking. Third, freedom. Ironically, Herod, who was free, ultimately had no authority over him except for Caesar, who was a continent away. He had freedom to do just about whatever he wanted, and he was putting it on display here for his guests and these high-ranking officials. Though he has this appearance of freedom, he is truly enslaved. He is in bondage. He is a puppet ruler, but more than that, he is in bondage to his own passions, his own lust for pleasure, which is evident, for power, for authority and the approval of men, which may have been his greatest pursuit and enslavement. He is not free. Jesus, the one who is truly free, King of kings, Lord of lords, with all authority, gives up his freedom to enter into flesh, into humanity in the incarnation. He gives up his life and lays it down that we might become free. He came and proclaimed Isaiah, the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy in Luke chapter 4. I have come to set the captives free, those in bondage and those oppressed to give freedom. The Apostle Paul will clearly pick up on this theme in many of his writings. The most concise, I think, Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And while we pray and long for a holistic freedom in every way, primarily Jesus comes to set us free from our flesh, from our inward desires and passions for approval, for control, for power, to set us free from that sin which would lead us away from the kingdom of God and into our own kingdoms, to deliver us from that pursuit and bring us into true freedom under the one true king. That's contrast three, power, control, freedom, and finally wisdom. The one who should have been wise to rise to that kind of position, to at least understand the world and how it works and how the power structures are at play, what authority is and is not, this king is completely ignorant and foolish. He is blind and he is hard-hearted. He's intrigued by John. He continues to listen to the truth being preached and it seems to tickle his ears. He keeps listening and intrigued, but rejects and denies in his hard-heartedness. His foolishness on display 
from all, in front of all of his guests, out of control, saying what he means not to say and cannot follow up, making assumptions that he don't, knows nothing about, I believe is a microcosm of his overall rule. According to the historian Josephus, when he is exiled by Caesar Caligula in AD 39, it's because of his flippant tongue. He was accused of being a conspirator, but many others believe likely he was simply proclaiming how big he was and powerful he was and how much he could have control and he could take and he would rule. And Caesar Caligula got word of that and exiled him. So by his flippant and loose tongue and maybe by his own passions, he proves that he is a fool. And Jesus stands in contrast as the wisdom of God, the revelation of truth, the one true reality. John 14, 6, he proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is ready to heal and to save all who would turn to him, all with soft hearts and open ears, all who come in repentance, while many remain hardened, stubborn, foolish, and arrogant. Jesus would say in this famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a fool who would seek to build his house upon the sand with no foundation. And you probably know the rest of that parable. On that sobering note, how do we respond? Feeling again the, the sting of, of earthly power, if it is a commentary for today, because not much has changed in our world. But also, I pray the hope of the one true king, as we've already been singing today, the king of glory, the king of all kings, the king who rules and leads forever in a way that is unlike what our world even knows and grasps. Will we ever? Which king do we want? Which king will we serve? Which king will we worship? Here's three things to respond. They almost rhyme. First, we lament. We lament. Our world is so full of evil and abuse. Rulers and kings like Herod, how is it they keep getting into positions of power and authority to oppress and abuse? By our actual votes, or by our votes of allegiance or approval or association, or by the very systems that we have constructed, we feel the sting of earthly power. We lament over the seemingly insufficient number of humble, wise, self-controlled, meek, Christ-like men and women who lead and love like Jesus, giving their power away to serve. In our world, they continue to be ignored and marginalized, and maybe themselves oppressed and persecuted. And we keep having this historical cycle of after their death, getting aware of their teachings and what they stood for, and then elevating them. Like Martin Luther King Jr., like Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, and Gandhi, and on and on. We continue to do the very same, maybe because of the systems that are put in place of power in our world, but because we are creating and fostering and sustaining those same systems, because it is our, by our nature to do so without the hope and the indwelling of the Spirit, which sets us free and makes a whole new kingdom in the authority of one ruler and one king. So we lament and we repent. That should lead, lament, lament should lead to repent, a change of mind and a change of thinking. That is repentance according to Mark. That's what the word literally means to see things in a new way, to believe things in a new way, 
to change by the, but it's, it's involved, the actions and the word are involved with our thinking. They must go hand in hand. We must, by our thinking, change our behavior. So we repent, God. We repent, forgive us, God, for our own Herod-like qualities and desires. We want to just put Herod up as, as one so contrasted to who we are, knowing Jesus is the true contrast, but we're, we're much more like Jesus than we are like Herod. First, God, we repent of where we would be no different in that system and that structure at that place with that power. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, God, for embracing and supporting the systems of this world that elevate evil and power like this, who would abuse and oppress weak people. Remember that repentance is a gift. Changing and turning is a gift. And it's meant to be done regularly as we come into God's kingdom. God, help us as we repent and receive your grace and your forgiveness to walk into your kingdom in love, grace, service, humility, healing, empowering and protecting the weak and marginalized, the true freedom that you offer and the peace and the hope. We do this regularly. So our, our lamenting leads to repenting, and then we seek to represent. That, see how it almost rhymed? Lament, repent, represent, or represent, as I like to say, because that's the call for the follower of Jesus. We are meant to show him to the world, to follow his ways so much that when others see us, he becomes glorified. He becomes known. And that is what the disciples were doing. When Herod heard of this and heard these rumors about what was happening, the focus was on Jesus. May it always be as we go to represent him wherever he is sending us, whether that is across the street or in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our, in our places where we live, work, learn, and play. We are meant to be his agents, his ambassadors, bringing the message of reconciliation, of hope of his kingdom, of a kingdom like this, like we've been describing with this kind of king. That is good news. That is good news to everyone who would hear it, except for those in power who want to keep power and keep control and keep oppressing. But for the rest of the world, that is good news. And if we are not preaching that message, it's not being heard. It may be received differently. It may be heard differently. And that may not be up to us, but it better be the message we're proclaiming. And we would hope that if there is a response of rejection, it would come with, I simply can't believe that that's true. That starts to get at the heart of the gospel. I long to live in that kind of a kingdom and that kind of a world, and I don't believe it's possible, and I don't believe it's Jesus who's the king. But that means we proclaimed the gospel rightly because the longing for it would be there, but the lack of faith to believe or the, the hardness of heart potentially or just the not yet ready to step into that kind of a kingdom that that's the barrier, not any earthly barriers or walls that we tend to construct in our own ways and our own wills. Jesus, can we represent you? Will we represent you? Give us eyes to see and hearts to respond, your words to speak. We do not have far to go to see the hurting and the marginalized, the oppressed and the abused, the poor amongst us. We must simply have eyes to see and a prayerful heart to go. We see so many continue to be abused, silenced, and enslaved by the evil systems in our world. We may not be able to change these systems or the world. That seems daunting, doesn't it? 
But with that attitude, we never will. Renewal, reformation takes everyone in their own places. While we pray for those modern-day prophets and those voices to be raised up who will likely be attacked most severely, and may we stand with them and encourage them where they exist today. But for where we are, we don't have to go far to be stretched in ways like those first disciples, to be welcoming the poor, to be breaking bread at our tables, to be showing hospitality, to be visiting the sick or the bedridden, to be visiting the imprisoned, to be welcoming children or adopting them. It may not change the system or the world. And with that attitude, it never will. But it will change a life, maybe primarily ours, but may it also be others in deep need. So we bow and we surrender before you, King Jesus, in worship, the one true King, King of kings, by lamenting, by repenting, and by seeking to represent you as we go from this place. Unto you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.